Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plushcare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Under pressure. Pushing blood for me, pushing blood for you. That's what it does. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Dr. Matt and Dr. Mike's Medical Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Mike Todorovich. I am joined by my co-host. The Queen. The queen. That's right. The Queen, Dr. Matthew, James, Lorraine, Freddie, Barton. How are you, Maddie? Yeah. yeah, I don't know. I think that's a little bit better. Or maybe even that. Yeah, that's, that's yeah. what I'm used to, actually. Yeah, I think Especially so. Especially at the... The start of my lectures. <laughs> well, you got to stop singing at the start. Um, under pressure. I think it's a given that everyone knows we're talking about blood pressure today. Uh, blood pressure is a very important topic for a multitude of reasons. It's important uh, to maintain health, life. life. Uh, and also, if blood pressure gets knocked out of control, it can lead to an early ending of life. So we need to be able to adequately understand- Too high or too low? Well, it both. becomes problematic. Yeah. Well, that's homeostasis for you. We need this nice, happy, healthy range that we sit within. Too high, not good. Too low, not good as well. So blood pressure, Matt. I think before we jump into it, what I want to do, because usually at the end of the podcasts, I do the call to action. And I don't know if anyone's <laughs> still listening, to be honest, especially after our two hour long episodes. But if you want to support us, and I recommend that you do, you don't have to do it financially. We don't ask of any money from you. We just ask for you to give us a five-star rating. I think you say for, for love. For, for we do it for love and adulation and for our dear, dear audience. <laughs> but give us a five-star review. Leave a comment. Um, tell us that you think we're brilliant. If you don't think we're brilliant, um, maybe just don't leave a rating or anything. I mean, we had somebody leave us a pretty dodgy one-star rating 
recently. Yeah, sorry about that. And one of one of the reasons why was because we asked the audience to give us a five star rating, and they said, "Don't ask. This is what you get." So that's pretty mean. Uh, but anyway, uh, feel free leave us five star rating. Uh, you can also follow us on social media, uh, particularly me. Matt's not very. Uh, prominent on social media, but you can follow us. I'm at Dr. Mike Todorovic on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, Facebook, you name it. And we've also got a popular YouTube channel where these podcast episodes are basically broken down into videos that we actually present at a whiteboard. So we've got blood pressure videos, hypertension videos. I think we've got over 250 YouTube videos where we teach anatomy and physiology, pathophysiology, pharmacology, and so forth. All right. Should we talk about um, that we have a maybe a new series podcast coming up? (sighs) Oh, Maddie, maybe. Well, look, as of today, which is Tuesday the 16th of August, 9.03 a.m. Australian Eastern Standard Time. What year? uh, In the the year of our Lord, 2022, uh, we have – says the atheist, we have a new podcast coming out. And this podcast is, and it's a strange concept, but it's interesting, where we are taking your favourite anatomy and physiology textbook, we're opening it up at the index at A, the letter A, and we are going through each term that's in the index one by one, and we are defining it, explaining it, for you. Just giving a bit of context. Yeah. Each episode goes for about five minutes. Yep. And we're going to go through the hundreds and hundreds of terms that are in the mm. index of your favourite anatomy and physiology. We're starting with textbook. AMP. Anatomy and physiology, that's right. And then we, we'll, we'll, get, we'll get into things like pathophysiology and pharmacology. That's right. Later down the track, whenever we have time to do it. So watch this space. It's going to be a whole new podcast. Listen, listen to this space. So we will advertise it once we start it. And if you follow me on social media, I will definitely advertise it there and I will let you know. But we're going to try and release three episodes a week, Matt. So We're, we're going to be busy. We need a huge backlog and this is for you. And again, it's for free. So if you appreciate it, Say hi, drop us an email, give us five-star rating, tell your friends, uh, tell them that your favourite lecturers are Dr. Matt and Dr. Mike. All right, I think we should start the podcast. Let's take a look at blood pressure. Matt, define blood pressure for us. Oh, all right. Um, <laughs> Good start. <laughs> so um, blood pressure, I'm guessing is in reference to the pressure. That's you're guessing, so you don't actually know. So you're just making this up. Kind of. It's not good for it's the an, It's a very, um, it's a very much an educated guess. <laughs> <laughs> so um, it's in reference to all those um, pipes and tubes that carry blood in our body, and there's many different names f- for those. We can have the arteries and arterioles, the capillaries, the venules, the, ve- the veins. So all of those, because they contain and carry blood the blood itself would be exerting a pressure against the wall of that particular vessel. Mm. Is that fair so far? Absolutely. And so depending on what vessel you're in, there's going to be a different a degree of pressure that's exerted on that wall. All right. Now, in the arterial side, so this is generally considered blood that's, um, that has a higher concentration of oxygen. And so this is coming out of the left side of the heart, so it's under a higher pressure. So in these... Um, array of blood vessels, the, you would expect the pressure to be much higher. As Why? 
Well, you've just left the heart itself, which the heart is a muscle pump. So that's the, the area of the cardiovascular system that is generating the, the highest degree of force. But or the push, blood or leaves the right-hand side of the heart, so why isn't that high in pressure? Well, in that circuit, so when you, when you leave the right side or the right ventricle, that's going to the pulmonary circuit. Mm-hmm. And so that doesn't have to go so far. So where's the left side going to? Well, that's going to the whole body. There you go. Yeah. That's so, what we're after. So that has to go to um, the three, 30, 30 trillion cells in your body. Mm. And so they are kind of in their own neighbourhoods. And so um, they have to get another, enough force of blood to, to those neighbourhoods to, to kind of give all the good things that are in the blood for the survival of those cells. Yeah, simply put, the left side of the heart has to deliver blood to the top of our head, to the tip of our toes, which is obviously a great distance, when the right-hand side of our heart just has to go to the lungs, which is either side. So, the heart, yeah. so it doesn't need to generate much force to get the blood there. So like Matt said, blood pressure is the force that the blood puts on the walls of the various vessels, and that force changes depending on which vessel we are in. So to begin with, Matt, I think we should talk about just blood flow through the heart very briefly, uh, not in detail, just referring to the amount of blood that needs to leave the heart mm-hmm. and what factors can alter that because then that sort of leads us into the various factors that can alter the blood pressure. So so for now, are we just going to focus on the left side of the heart? Yes. To the body? That's right. Okay. So left-hand side of the heart, it obviously is going to go through various stages of relaxation and contraction. So let's talk about the left ventricle, for example. So this is the bottom left chamber of the heart. It's got a very thick muscle wall called a thick myocardium. And it's obviously thick because of the point you made earlier. When it contracts, it needs to be a strong contraction to push that blood out to deliver it to the whole body. So the heart's going to relax. And when it relaxes, it fills with blood. And when it contracts, it ejects blood. Now, if you calculate how much of this blood is leaving the heart within about a time span of one minute, we find out that it ends up being something like five litres of blood. Which is pretty much all the blood in your body, right? Exactly. Mm. So just one side of your heart, just the left-hand side of your heart, will pump out your entire blood's worth in a single minute. Okay. Which is a fair bit. And I always say to my students, you put that into perspective, if you can get a bucket. So a pretty standard bucket that you'd get from a hardware store. Yep, fill it with five litres of water and set a timer and pour that out over a time span of one minute until the bucket's empty. That's how much much blood's getting pumped out of just the left-hand side of your heart. Per minute. Per minute, exactly. That's amazing. And so if we think about how that works, obviously it's a pretty simple equation. Your heart's going to contract or beat Mm -hmm. a number of times in that minute. And And you can can feel that with a pulse, taking a pulse. Yeah, put your fingers on on the radial pulse of your wrist, for example, and you can count how many times it beats in a minute. And with every one of those beats, it's going to eject a bit of blood. Mm. And Mm. so you can say, okay, how many beats are there? And multiply it by how much blood is ejected with every one of those beats. So Matt, do you measure your resting heart rate at all? No. No. Okay, so you don't have a smart watch or anything like that? Do you have a watch? I do have watches. I don't think I've ever seen I, you wear yeah, a watch. I don't really wear them anymore. I used to wear them much more frequently. You know, that actually makes sense because you are late to most things. That I wouldn't we say do. most things. Usually things with you. Um, <laughs> the levels of importance is The amount of just times that there. I have to have a meeting that Matt and I have meetings at work on the other side of campus and it's two minutes to the meeting 
And I get very anxious about this. I'm going, Matt, we're going to go, we're going to go. We're going, yeah, we'll leave in a sec, we'll leave in a sec. And we get there 10 minutes after the meeting has started. <laughs> and he's cool, he's relaxed, he doesn't care. And I'm stressed, I'm apologising for both of That's us. That's why you got high blood pressure and I don't. I, no, I don't have high blood pressure. I've actually got very good blood pressure, but we'll get there. <laughs> All right, so um, we're talking about heart rate. So I have, I've, was talking to a couple of athletes and I was asking, I was actually talking about this exact same topic and I was asking them about what their, because they measure their heart rate all the time okay. and they measure their resting heart rate. And I was like, so what's your resting heart rate? They're like 50 beats a minute. I'm like, wow. Another guy said 45 beats a minute. That's I'm like, good. whoa, okay. What's yours? Uh, mine's 55 beats a minute okay. is my resting heart rate. Uh, I think mine's around that. Yeah, which is, and, and so a lot of people who do exercise is probably going to be between 50 to 60 beats per minute. But the average resting heart rate for the general population is actually about 70 beats per minute. Between like 60 and 80, right? Yeah. 60, so if, 60 to 90. So if we take that 70 beats and just say that's the heart rate, mm. we can now multiply that by with every beat – how much blood's getting ejected, and then we can calculate how much blood's ejected over the span of a minute. So we've got 70 beats. How much blood do you think is ejected on average with every contraction of the left ventricle? Just um, keep it simple and just go 70. 70 mils? Yeah. Okay, 70 milliliters. So, and that way you can remember it. Yeah, 70 times 70, exactly, which is around about five liters of blood being ejected by left-hand side of the heart every minute. And again, when I was talking to these athletes, I said to them, okay, so... Knowing that, knowing that your heart rate is like 45, 50 beats per minute, is your stroke volume, which is the amount of blood that's ejected with every contraction, just so you know, is that still going to be 70 mils? I said, because if it stays at 50, your cardiac output drops to 3.5 litres, right? So you need to maintain five litres every minute being Mm, pumped out. mm. And they said, well, probably not. I go, no. So what do you think is happening? They said, oh, maybe I eject more blood than 70 mils. I go, that's right. How is that possible? I said, well, think about it. When your heart is contracting and relaxing, if you're only beating 50 times a minute compared to 70, there's a lot – the time period between contraction and relaxation is greater. So the relaxation time goes for longer, and so your heart has a longer time to fill Mm. with blood. And there's this thing called the Frank Starling mechanism, which means the more blood that fills the heart is equivalent to more blood leaving the heart when it contracts. Yeah. The more you stretch, the more you contract. So their stroke volume, the amount that's ejected with every contraction, is greater. So what it's, we- it's a bit like um, if you're staying on the athletes, if mm. you look at, say, an athlete swimmer or a runner, they're probably each one of those strides or strokes, so swimming, they do it less frequently – Yes. But when they do it, they do it really well. That's right. They're, it, it, they're being efficient. Like, I remember um, he's, he's well and truly retired now, but we used to have a swimmer called Ian Thorpe. Yes. He was a very famous Australian swimmer. And you'd watch him swim and he, he wouldn't be – his stroke He looks slow, right? Yeah. yeah. But he just cruises yeah. because each one of those strokes is so efficient yes. that he doesn't have to do as many strokes as you and I. Like we would – be look like we're drowning. Yeah, that's right. But he's just Flailing like in the water. Yeah, he's just doing it so efficiently. Yeah. And so therefore, you don't have to do it as frequently. That's right. And and the reason why the heart can eject more blood is because as an athlete, your heart is a muscle and the more you use that muscle, the greater the muscle tissue will grow called hypertrophy and therefore it becomes efficient. So 
one single contraction of an athlete's heart is going to be equivalent to maybe three or four contractions of somebody who doesn't. Um, but but interestingly on so that, because you you could think about it and go, well, if you're an athlete and you're um, stressing yourself from a cardiovascular standpoint and therefore your heart has to adapt against that stress, mm. which in that moment would be hypertension, right? Would you agree? Yeah. So yeah. You're, you're competing as an athlete. Yeah. Let's say you're a middle distance runner. So you're pushing your legs hard, so therefore you need – um, greater blood flow to the area, therefore you have a high blood pressure whilst you're exercising. Mm. Your heart is pushing against greater pressure. So it is in itself trying to work against a greater resistance and it will adapt by building up muscle in its heart itself, yeah. right? But then how is that different to a, a, a patient who's just got high blood pressure for decades all right. right let's get there let's, well, not, let me, let's i don't think we should address it now well i'm just going to say yeah, yeah um the way that the heart builds itself for an athlete is different to the way the heart builds itself against the person who's got hypertension very true yeah, yeah, and, yeah and that hypertension um induced um changes hypertrophy is be, be, actually becomes detrimental to the heart yes whereas the heart of an athlete who has built um a bigger degree of muscle to its blood pressure and exercise yeah. is actually more efficient. And I think that's a good point because an, you, athlete, an athlete's blood pressure changes transiently, right? Mm-hmm. It boosts up through the exercise, but then after exercise for up to 24 hours, the blood pressure is actually quite low, uh, which is one of the benefits of exercise for blood pressure, you know. But you compare that to somebody who has chronic hypertension, yeah. That blood pressure is constantly elevated, which means the heart actually is probably having to work a lot harder yeah. than an athlete's heart yeah. because it's constantly trying to overcome this high blood pressure to feed the tissues. And if you were to look, look at the heart of an athlete, not to say this would be possible, but let's just say theoretically, if you were to look at the heart, um, you know, from a, a macroscopic view, like grossly, yeah. you may not distinguish the difference between mm. an athlete's heart that has a um, hypertrophy and a patient that has had um, hypertrophy due to high blood pressure yeah if you were then but if you were to pull and tease apart each one of those muscles then there would be a morphological yes or structural difference mm. and unfortunately the one with chronic hypertension it it actually impedes the quality of the beat yeah and that then leads to things like heart failure that's it um all right so that's a bit of a digression but let's get back to the cardiac output. So we said the heart's pumping out, left-hand side of the heart is pumping out five litres of blood every minute. Uh, this is at rest. So let's just not talk about the athletes at the moment, but we can get back to exercise and the role of exercise at blood pressure. Um, so five litres coming out of the heart. That five litres needs to, because it's the left-hand side, go to all the tissues of the body. So this five litres needs to be distributed to different tissues and each tissue has a different demand of oxygen and nutrients. And so the way I like to generally break it up is that this five litres is going to go to the coronary arteries, so of the heart to feed the heart. So 5% of that five litres goes to the heart, heart itself. To the heart itself. Around about 15 uh, – I said five litres, sorry, 5%. I oh, think you said 5%. Oh, did I? Okay, yeah. sorry. 5% goes to the coronaries. 15% goes to the brain. Okay. 25% goes to the gut or the gastrointestinal tract. You've got 20% going to the kidneys. 
20% going to the muscles. Skeletal muscles. Skeletal muscles. And 5% of that five litres going to the skin. And if I've done my maths right. correctly, this should be 10% remaining. That 10% That's the rest of the body. is, yeah, rest the other tissues, right? So then the question is... Which is, which is quite astounding when you think about it. Because mm. again, as we spoke about, the whole body has 30 trillion cells in it. And you would think that you're just trying to get blood equally to mm. these 30 trillion cells. You just got to throw it out into the pipes to all these neighbourhoods of different tissues. Yeah. But what you're saying is, let's say the kidney, which is only 100 grams in size, not very big at all, yeah, yeah. is getting 20% of the whole blood. Yes, the kidneys have this disproportionate requirement Extremely. of blood. And, and that's because, not because the tissue necessarily needs to be fed a lot, but because the role that the excuse me, the role that the kidneys play is filtering that blood and needs to constantly filter the blood. So its requirement of 20% of that cardiac output, which is one litre every minute, needs to go to the kidneys so it can be filtered, is enormous. It just highlights the importance of that role. And it needs to maintain this. This is the thing, is that while the coronaries need 5%, brain needs 15%, gut needs 25%, and kidneys 20%, muscles 20%, and so forth... This is what it needs. Like this isn't just like a, a number that's thrown out. It needs to maintain this percentage and this is just at rest. Yeah. So sometimes the demand increases depending on what you're doing. So muscles, for example, like you were alluding mm-hmm. to, like your middle distance runner, they're going for a run and you said their legs are moving and contracting. They need more oxygen and nutrients. So the demand for the muscle tissue has gone up and it might go from – because I said 20% of this five litres needs to go to the muscle tissue, it might go from one litre per minute to 20 litres per minute. Wow. Right? And, and so you'd think there, well, we only have five litres of blood, so where are you pulling? Coming out of the heart every minute. Where are you pulling? Well, just you've only got five litres of blood in the body, right? Yeah, yeah. So where are you getting the extra blood from? That's right. So the cardiac output needs to increase significantly yeah, yeah. and its percentage delivery to those other tissues Drops off. Needs to drop down so it can maintain the muscle. So the blood going to your skin. Goes away. Goes away. The blood going to your gut goes away. And even a bit to the kidney, right? Yep. So whilst you're in that kind of stress response. And shunts it, pushes it away from those areas to feed the muscles. Mm. And this is all part of blood pressure because blood pressure is, is one of the ways that the body can control the way we feed the tissues. We need to maintain a particular pressure. But before we do that, I want to talk about some of the factors that can affect the cardiac output because these factors actually affect blood pressure as well because cardiac output, the reason why we brought it up, is one of the main factors. There's two main factors. It's one of the two main factors that influence somebody's blood pressure. Okay. So while we said cardiac output is two things, the heart rate yep. and the amount of blood ejected with every beat, beat. we can which talk is, about- Which is stroke volume, right? Which is stroke volume. Yeah we can talk about the factors that influence each of these things. Okay. And I think the first one we should talk about is the stroke volume, all the different factors that can affect how much blood is ejected with every beat. Okay. So I think what we need to talk about is the fact that, again, the heart will contract and relax, contract and relax. So I think whilst you're using these terms, I think there's um, another medical terms that we can use to interchange here that is probably more useful when we start to talk about blood pressure. Perfect. What are they? Well, the contraction is known as systole or systolic and uh, the relaxation is 
diastole or diastolic. Perfect. And so when you spoke about the stroke volume, so this is the amount of blood that leaves the left ventricle per beat, that would be in a systolic phase. So when it contracts? Yep. And then when the left ventricle is filling to get ready for the next beat, because it has to fill back up with that, let's chamber back up with blood, that is what we call diastole. Perfect. Yeah. So you've got diastole occurring and systole occurring repetitively over your entire lifetime to fill and eject. And very simply, not that say this is necessarily accurately, but just to give an image of it, that lub-dub, 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 lub-dub that you hear in your heart, if you were to listen, that kind of equates to systole, diastole. Okay, cool. Not perfectly, but that just at least sets it up. Cool, okay. So if we ever think about the stroke volume, how much blood is ejected with each beat, it's a pretty, again, it's got its own equation. Everything's got an equation associated with it. Um, If you, during diastole, the heart's relaxed and it's filling with blood. Right at the very end of diastole, you have a particular volume of blood, which unsurprisingly we can call the end diastolic volume. So we know that there's a particular volume there. Then the heart's going to contract, systole. And at the very end of that contraction, blood's been ejected, but not all the blood has been ejected. Some blood remains in the heart. So you can't fully empty it. Can't fully empty. So then you can calculate, well, how much blood is left in the heart after systole, after the contraction, and that unsurprisingly is called the end systolic volume. Mm. So if you minus the end diastolic volume, the most blood that's in the heart after filling, and minus the amount of blood that's left over in the heart, after ejection, which is the end systolic volume, that tells you how much blood was ejected. And on average, it's about 70 milliliters. Per beat. Per beat. But there's things that can affect the filling and the emptying. And that's what we need to talk about here. Okay. And again, these are factors that affect stroke volume, but also factors that affect blood pressure. Okay. So one thing that affects the amount of blood being ejected is the contractility of the heart. So how hard that heart muscle can contract. What causes muscle to contract, Matt? Just generally? Just what's the one thing that needs to happen right at the very end point? What's the one thing that needs to happen in order for it to contract? <laughs> Mike's doing some strange hand movements here. Um, well, muscle is a contractile tissue and it has a whole lot of contractile proteins in it, yep. actinomycin, and they do these kind of cross-bridge relationship things where they yep. kind of pull themselves together yep. and that kind of shortens the, the length of the muscle so what do they the, need the to do that? Unit What's the one the thing they need? What's the oh. one thing? Well, I wouldn't say there's one thing. But no, ca- I know. But calcium's very important. That's it. Okay. That's it. Calcium. But I think also ATP is well, pre- yeah. pretty necessary. ATP is <laughs> pretty important. But I think we can safely say that ATP is present at all times throughout the body, is constantly regulated, not necessarily outside of food. There's not much we can do there. But... Calcium is uh, the major regulator of muscle contraction. We need to throw calcium into the muscle cell for it to contract. Yep. Um, and so in order for contractility to change, calcium needs to change. That's a big point, important point. And uh, something, what's something that the body can do, <laughs> Matt, to tell calcium to jump into the heart muscle cell? What's something that can tell it to do that? Well, um Calcium's stored in some organelles, right? Yes. Okay. Do you know so, what they're called? Um, a smooth endoplasmic reticulum. Sarcoplasmic reticulum, which is smooth endoplasmic yeah, okay. reticulum, but for yeah. muscle. Well played. 
Um, <laughs> so basically, like depolarization, so just changing the um, the charge of the cell yep. will kind of lead to a release of calcium in, into the cell. What cha- what tells it to do? What's one of the what's one of the things that our body can do to tell a uh, heart muscle cell to depolarize more frequently? Um, Has to do with the autonomic nervous system, maybe? Oh, okay. So externally, outside the heart, you yeah, mean? Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. Okay. Uh, well, you could have um, the sympathetic nervous system that kind of increases the speed of depolarization. So that's the fight or flight system? Yeah, yeah. Yep. Okay. Was that the That's answer? what I'm after. That's oh, okay. what I'm after. So when, we wa- so when we look at factors that can influence contractility, yep. it's going to be calcium levels yep. and the sympathetic nervous system. Which ultimately just depolarizes the cells more frequently, yep. which then releases more calcium. That's right. Also in quicker pulses. Yes. Okay. So we've got that. That's contractility. But the other thing we need to know about when it comes to stroke volume is the filling and the emptying. So what can influence filling of the heart? So this is preload? Preload, which we haven't defined yet. Okay. So, okay, let's define that now. It's <laughs> all right. I was going to define it afterwards, but that's okay. So preload... There's two, two terms you need to understand here when it comes to stroke volume and it's preload and afterload. Okay, so preload is preloading the heart with yeah. more blood, right? That's it. So just you're, in, you're increasing the return of blood back to the heart. Yeah, by definition, it's the maximal amount of blood that will fill. The, it's actually the maximal amount of stretch mm-hmm. that the left ventricle will experience at the very end of diastole, at the okay. very end of relaxation and filling. So what, what influences that blood flow filling the heart? Uh, well, I'd, I'd say venous return. Yeah. Okay, but probably also just general blood volume. Mm. If you do something and you boost blood volume in ge- just generally, yep. that would also increase preload by default, wouldn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah so just general blood volume uh, and uh, venous return. Perfect. So the amount of blood that can be returned back from the venous system. And I think uh, don't want to go too much into this, but the, the veins of the body um, surprisingly are actually more of like reservoirs for blood. And so, if you can more efficiently empty veins or do certain things that encourage venous emptying, mm. and exercise is part of that, right? That's right. Because yeah. veins don't really have the ability to empty themselves very well, like, like arteries, yeah. <laughs> like me. Um, uh, so they rely actually on skeletal muscles to do a lot of their um, pumping for them. Yeah. And that's called Squeezes the muscle them. pump. Yeah, yeah 70, up to 70% of our blood volume, up to 70% of that five litres that we have in our bloodstream sits within the veins. Which works out perfectly when you spoke about that athlete that needs, what would you say, 20 litres? 20 litres, yeah. So whilst they're exercising and they're needing all that arterial blood to give oxygen and nutrients, they, they're moving their leg muscles, which is returning all that venous yeah, blood. squeezing those veins and bringing it back. And so you're getting more preload, which yes. is then you're in enhancing that um, filling and yeah. then more blood's exiting. Yes, so that's exactly right. So you've got the preload, filling it up. Uh, we spoke very briefly about the Frank Starling mechanism where the more blood that you fill the heart, the more blood will be ejected from the heart. And therefore well, you're going to like increase cardiac output. It's a bit like a bow and arrow, right? Is if, it? If you... <laughs> The further you stretch back the bow, yeah. the further the arrow is going to go, right? right Why? Yeah. More force. Well, it's got, you, you 
you're doing more, what is it, potential energy as you pull back yeah. the bow. So it has a greater elastic recoil. Yeah. So it's similar to the ventricles, right? If oh, you okay. If you That's fill right. it up more and more and more. I thought you were crazy with this analogy, but it works. It works. And so you, you fill it and fill it and fill it until it releases a greater force of blood. Perfect. So preload is one way we can alter cardiac output. You increase preload, increase cardiac output. The thing we said before that was... It, Contractility, increase contractility, increase cardiac output. And the last one here is afterload. And so afterload is, students always find this a tricky concept, but it's pretty easy. Afterload is the force that that left ventricle needs to overcome in order to eject the blood out of the ventricle. Now, the blood vessel that's exiting that left ventricle is the... Aorta. Aorta. And so the aorta is going to branch off you know, a gazillion times. I don't think that's Literally, Matthew. True. No, read it in a textbook. The <laughs> aorta will branch off many, many times in order to feed all the tissues of the body. And so if the aorta is experiencing some sort of high pressure, some sort of resistive forces mm. in there, so if it's narrowed or blocked yep. or there's a lot of backward pressure moving back into the left-hand side of the heart. Or the valve that um, yes. allows the blood to go through but then stops backflow. Yeah, if that's, that's stenotic or hardened. Um, it means that that left ventricle after filling, so after preload, right, preload filling that left-hand side of the heart maximally with blood, now it's going to contract and when that left ventricle contracts, it needs to pump that blood out of the left-hand side of the heart into the aorta. If there's a lot of resistance that it's experiencing, that left-hand side of the heart needs to work harder to overcome that resistance and that's afterload. It's the resistive forces that the left-hand side of the heart needs to overcome. So if you think about it, if afterload is higher... That means the resistive forces are higher and less blood will get ejected because mm. there's more things to overcome, yeah. right? So afterload, there's an inverse relationship between the afterload value and the stroke volume, the amount of blood that's ejected. Yep. So we've now just discussed all the factors that can affect stroke volume. Contractility, preload and afterload. Increase contractility, increase stroke volume. Increase preload, increase stroke volume. Decrease afterload, increase stroke volume. And obviously vice versa for all of them. Mm. The last thing is the heart rate. Yeah. And we can change that relatively easily by just innovation from the nervous system. So the sympathetic nervous system can talk to the two important nodes that set the rhythm of the heart, which is the SA or sinatrial node and the AV, atrioventricular node. And it can release catecholamines, so noradrenaline, that stimulate the heart to, so uh, are the beta-1 receptors? Yep. Yep, or alpha-1 receptors. No, beta-1. Beta-1 receptors. So it throws beta-1 receptors at them and increases the heart rate. Mm. Boom, 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 boom. Beautiful. If you want to slow it down, the parasympathetic nervous system innovates the SA and AV node and inhibits it. Or slows it. Or slows it. Yeah, well, I should say slows it. So not inhibits well, that, that's, it. So that's going to be the effect of acetylcholine. Acetylcholine, that's right. And so these are the which factors. We, which you're going to talk about later, right? I will, yeah. yes. So do you think we've summarised the factors that can affect cardiac output now? Yeah, I think that's enough, yeah. Brilliant. All right, so now we've got this five litres of blood, cardiac output, going to all those tissues, which we stated at what percentage is each. And I want to chuck in an analogy here, right? So Matt's got a really beautiful yard. We're actually in Matt's little granny flat here for the granny he doesn't have. And he's got all these beautiful plants that he spends about four hours watering every afternoon. 
Um, uh, we, we had a lot of rain in Queensland, so I haven't had to water pl- my plants for some time. Okay, but you've got a hose, right? <laughs> Strange question to ask. <laughs> you've got a garden hose, right? Yeah, yeah that, a that, few of them. Okay, yep. and so let's say we take one of your garden hoses and we attach it to the tap. And so, uh, the, so in this analogy, the tap is the heart. And the hose is your blood vessels, okay. right? Okay. Um, so you've got three plants. The hose is only of a particular length, right? Let's say, you, let's say my orange trees. All right. You've got three orange trees that you need to feed, but they're all at different, different. distances away from you. From the tap. From the tap, right? Mm-hmm. Now, the hose is only a couple of metres long. You can't walk to each of those plants. You have to stand in one position and try and water or feed each of those three plants. One's one metre away, one's two metres away, and one's three metres away, right? Okay. And the water that's coming out, you've turned the tap on and you've made sure that five litres of water is exiting- The tap. That tap every minute. So five litres is exiting the hose every minute. Okay. Okay? Now, the pressure that's generated in the walls of that hose- Can I just- um here Say something real yes, quick okay. here. Yep. Just as a, this is just an interest. Well, this is just a thought, um, and a and a question back to you. Right. So, if you had five liters of water coming out of the tap per minute, yes. Okay. And then just by default, put that hose on. Yeah. My guesstimation is, you're not going to get five liters out of that hose. You're going to lose a bit of flow, right? Just because of the. Um, the resistance that the hose is pushing back on the. Tap. I disagree. Really? Yeah. Okay. I just thought you'd have to adjust possibly the tap to ensure you get still five liters. Water's incompressible, so yeah, it's, it's, it's not, not so much like water, but just the hose itself. Be, just the water's may... not going to be stored anywhere. It's not stagnant, so that that five liters needs to. And this is to my point. So I will answer it through okay. this analogy, right? Okay. So you're standing there. Five liters of water is exiting that hose every minute, and in order for that five liters to leave the hose, it needs to go at a particular flow rate, mm. and that flow rate is correlated correlating to the pressure inside of that hose. Mm. So the pressure that's of the water that's coming out, that's squirting out the end is only enough pressure to feed the closest orange tree. That's one metre yep. away. Yep, got that. Now the question is, you can't move. You The, the hose isn't any longer. Yep. How are you going to feed the other two orange trees? What are the things that you could possibly do? What's one thing that off, straight off the top of your head that you could do to feed, let's say, the next orange tree that's two metres away? Uh, well, you just make the... The water that's coming out the end um, more spurty. Well, you could increase the volume of water coming out of the tap, right? You could turn the tap on higher. Oh, okay. And increase the cardiac output. Sure. So yep. you could go from five liters a minute to ten liters a minute, and that ten liters must leave the hose because there's nowhere for it to go. And in order for ten liters to leave the hose, it needs to leave at a higher rate. Okay. at a faster rate, at a higher pressure, and therefore it pushes out further. So one way you can change the pressure in the hose, i.e. the blood pressure, is by increasing the cardiac output. So yep. that's one way. Yep. But let's just say you can't. Let's just say you can't change the that. The tap's fixed. The tap's fixed. You were alluding to another point. You said something well, about like, the squirtiness. Yeah, so you, can, you know how <laughs> the end of the hose, you've usually got a nozzle Yeah. that you regulate how much comes out of it? Yep. Like you put it on that 
um, particular setting. And you turn the end of it and it's yeah. like sprays it or focuses it. Yeah, so yeah. you put it on the focus. Yeah, we don't have one of those. You put it – oh, really? No. Nah. Okay, just use your just finger. Just an open hose. Just use your finger then. And what do you do with your finger? Uh, put it up the end of the hose. And so if and I put my finger on the end of the hose – Or your thumb. like Okay, I put my thumb on the end. Am I fully blocking it or no, just no, partially? Partially. So I'm changing the radius or diameter, diameter. Yep. of the hose. Yep. What happens then? Um, well, what happens to the water pressure? It would presumably increase the pressure. So it goes further. It goes further. All right. So what you're saying is that there's a relationship between the diameter or radius of the hose or the vessel and the pressure of the water. Correct. Okay. So this is true. There's something called Purcell's, if I'm pronouncing it properly, law, where the radius of a tube or hose or vessel or whatever it may be and the pressure or at least flow – is that there's a very strong relationship there where the, f- the flow is to the power of four of the radius. What that means is basically this. If you put your thumb over the end of that hose and cover half of it, so you half the radius. Mm. Let's say you go from one centimeter radius to um, let's say half a centimeter radius. The change in the flow is actually to the power of four. So you you actually go from 100% of fluid coming out to only four uh, to only 6% coming out. Wow. Right? You've blocked 94% of that fluid, that flow coming right, out, right. which alters the pressure because that water now backs up, backs up, backs up, backs up behind the hose upstream, which then ultimately increases the pressure and squirts out further to try and get that five litres out every minute. So if you narrow the diameter of a hose or blood vessel – you're going to ultimately increase the pressure behind. And that would be the, that's equivalent to the afterload then, right? That's right, mm-hmm. yes, incre- which increases the afterload. Um, but also will increase the flow coming out, yeah. right? And then if you were to dilate or open up that hose, you were to, let's say you double it from one centimetre to two centimetres, right? You end up changing it to the power of four. So the, the flow is 400%. So you increase the amount of fluid flowing out to 400% but the pressure changes and drops. Right. Right. Yep. So take home point I'm getting here with this convoluted analogy is, <laughs> is that if you change the diameter of a blood vessel, you're going to change the blood pressure as well. Yep. So if you constrict a blood vessel or narrow it, you're increasing the blood pressure. It's an inverse relationship. This is called the systemic vascular Think of it like resistance. this. You know when – well, this has actually got two, two um, variables – uh, in this analogy that I'm going to use. Um, <laughs> can, can we can we go to the second variable after I just f- finish up the diameter thing? Okay. Well, this one will probably be to some degree. Okay, so, have these, yeah. so as I said, if you, if you narrow the diameter, you increase the resistance in the vessel, increasing the pressure, mm. right? If you dilate or relax the vessel, you decrease the resistance and, and, inc- uh, and decrease the, the pressure. So... Resistance is related to pressure. Increase resistance, increase pressure. Decrease resistance, decrease pressure, and that's correlated with the diameter, right? Mm-hmm. So that's so. At the moment, blood pressure in its equation can be altered by cardiac output, so the volume that's being ejected every, every minute, yep. and the diameter of the vessel. But there's another factor with the va- what the we resistance. call the systemic vascular there's resistance. There's actually two, but keep going. Oh, you're right. No, no. Now I want you to say those other two things that can alter the systemic vascular resistance. 
you want to just tell you or in my analogy? Your analogy. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So let's get. Let's say you go to one of your favorite. Um, Orange uh, trees? No, no, we're done orange. <laughs> we're done. We're finished with that. Oh, so we're not doing that analogy. No, that's okay. finished. Um, one of your favourite uh, burger takeaway stores, Which chains. Yeah. I don't want to mention it. Okay, you're right. Um, I'm not advocating bad quality diets. Yeah, but I might want to be sponsored by <laughs> one of these burger chains. <laughs> so anyway, you go there and you decide to get two drinks. You get uh, a soda drink right. and you get uh, a thick shake. Okay. Okay? Yeah. Now – if you then get the straws, mm-hmm. just let's just say a standard straw, All right. okay, and you try to drink the, the, the soda, right? Uh, it, it comes out pretty easily, right? So the amount of force I need to generate to suck that yeah. soda up the straw is minimal. Minimal. All right. Now do that to the thick shake. Yeah, you won't get it up. It's true. I'm gonna suck really hard. <laughs> I'm gonna generate a huge amount of force to get that through. That's right. So what are you trying to say? Well, what's the variable that's changed? The thickness, the viscosity of the fluid. That's right. Okay, so okay. you're saying that if we change the viscosity of the fluid in the vessel, so the blood, yep. it changes the pressure. Yes, that's right. So more so, viscous, yeah. the higher the blood pressure. Or Yeah, that's right. Because, that's right. because what that's saying is it's not just the higher the, the pressure, it's, it's because it is increases the resistance. It's harder yeah. to push yep. viscous things through a vessel right. and ultimately it all backs up in the heart. This yep. is what increases all this pressure is whatever increases – blood backing up into the heart will increase the heart's need to contract harder or faster or both to overcome it. Correct. Right? And that's what increases the pressure itself. So what can we do to change the viscosity of our blood then? Oh, um... Just drink heaps of thick shakes. <laughs> well, that would probably change the viscosity of your blood vessel with a lot of plaques. So okay. Um, change the diameter, so narrow yeah, the, the diameter, uh, there systemic we go. vascular resistance. Uh, well, the, the most obvious one is um, – so if you look at blood itself, um, 55% of it is kind of uh, salty water. Yeah. Not r- like the ocean, no. but just a little bit salty. Yeah. Okay. That's 55% of your blood, okay, in terms of the proportion of it. Forty-five percent, um, which is quite a lot, is just from one cell type. What cell? Um, the red blood cells. Right. Okay. So fifty-five percent of your blood is red blood cells. Packed with them. Packed with them. Can you pack it even more? <laughs> yeah. What is this called? Hematocrit. Yes. There we go. Hematocrit. Yeah. So if you were to take your percentage of your blood and just say how much percentage is red blood cells, that would give you something called hematocrit, which is around forty-five or point four five. Okay. okay? Now, if you were to increase that somehow yes. uh, and then let's say it went up to 55, that is going to be a lot thicker mm. because it's got a lot more cells in it which makes it a thicker consistency which then makes it more like that thick shake. Okay, gotcha. Now, how would you get greater amounts of red blood cells? Well, if you are an athlete and you need particularly need to carry a lot of oxygen because that's what red blood cells do. Carry. Altitude training. Uh, I haven't got there yet. Oh, sorry. If sorry. you just were more cardi- cardi- cardiovascular fit yeah. and you just need to carry more oxygen, you probably would have a high percentage of red blood cells. Right. Now, if you went to the nth degree mm-hmm. and really pushed yourself, because the, the hormone that does this um, – thing that tells your bone marrow cells to make more red blood cells because that's yeah. where they're made. Your bone marrow? Bone marrow. Okay. So you make approximately 2 million red blood cells per… Second. Mm, second. Yeah. So that's a lot. It's a lot. Right? Yeah. And so if you're you… you're killing s- off a fair few too. Yeah, you're losing, you're yeah. losing a lot. Or you're losing a million a second, I think. Yeah. 
It seems astonishing, really. It's insane. Anyway, yeah. um, the hormone that tells those um, stem cells in your red blood, red bone marrow to make more um, blood blood cells yeah. is a hormone called EPO or erythropoietin. Yeah. Okay, and so if you were to somehow get more of that into your body, I wonder how uh, <laughs> it would make more red blood cells. Wow! So you could. Do this by, like you said, altitude. Don't mind me. I'm just putting on my lycra shorts and um, just got to find my helmets. And um, anyway, your face mask that's reducing oxygen content. Oh yeah, hyperbaric chamber. You could do one of those. They, they don't they pop themselves into a uh, some sort of. O- I thought they used chamber. to wear a mask that just. You can um, do that, which limits the amount yeah. of airflow coming in. Yeah. Um, but you can also do that whole sleep in a low oxygen or I did high that altitude. With, I did that with a friend. Um, when I was when I used to live in Sydney, the mask training. <laughs> oh, I did a the restricted a one flow off. training. Yeah, one off. So to pass out. So he was, um, you know, he pretty pretty um, fit guy. Um, we did our PhD together. He's now doing a neuro, he's doing neurosurgery. Okay. And so he's like, "Oh, come over to my house and we'll do some um, cardiovascular training, like high intensity training." I'm like, sure, come over. And he had said. <laughs> Set his whole front yard up with like truck tires and all these crazy stuff. Yeah. And then um, with sledgehammers, we're like hitting things and just stuff like that. Yeah. Right. And so he goes, This is what you're to do, blah, blah, blah. And he goes, But you've got to put it with a mask on. Right. So I'm doing this with a mask nice. and there's like neighbors walking past, <laughs> seeing me with his mask. That you look looks, like Bane from Batman. <laughs> yeah. Smacking <laughs> truck tires with a sledgehammer. <laughs> <laughs> don't don't mind us. Here's a neurosurgeon. I'm doing my PhD. We're fine. We're fine. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. On. Anyway, um, okay, so increase so increasing the viscosity of the blood is also one way we can increase the vascular resistance, which increases blood pressure. Yeah. You said there's another way. Um, oh yeah, so the length of the blood vessels. Right. So, so um, when you can we go back to my orange tree analogy? F- yeah, but let me that? just finish up the thick shake. Oh, of course. So, How so long are we going to talk about this oh, it's, thick it's shake? It's almost done. It's you almost love done. Thick shake. It's, <laughs> so, you sure you don't what, want to be sponsored what, by anyone? Whilst you're in your favorite burger joint and mm. you've got your thick shake, what do they give you for the thick shake? They give you for the they thick give shake. you a special straw, a thick straw, a, well, wide, a wide straw. straw. Yeah, so you can decrease and that's, it, and that's just perfect for that diameter. Gotcha. Example of decreasing the resistance. Beautiful. It's I do a, like that. It's a bigger hole. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So now let's talk about 
the vessel length. So we've said vessel diameter changes blood pressure. We've said the viscosity of the blood or yeah, the blood in the vessel changes the blood pressure. And now you said the vessel length changes yeah, the blood yeah. pressure. So yep. if we went back to that watering the orange tree analogy, if we were to lengthen the hose, that five litres per minute needs to now work its way through a longer length mm. of hose, which means there's more resistance it's encountering. Mm. Because obviously a short hose means you've only got, let's just say, one metre of resistance before it squirts out the other end. But if it's a 10 metre hose, there's 10 metres worth of resistance. So Go the, further. Go a kilometre. A kilometre hose, right? So it's a huge amount of resistance that that water or blood in this case needs to overcome and in our scenario with the heart so this is where i go just wait just wait in in this scenario let's just say we've got a kilometer of blood vessels right as that blood moves through the more vessel wall it experiences the more resistance it experiences and so it's harder to move through so the blood continues to back up into the heart and the heart goes, oh my God, there's more That's afterload. afterload that I need to overcome. So it contracts harder and it contracts faster to overcome it. So increasing stroke volume, increasing heart rate. Again, yep. we said were factors that influence cardiac output, which influences blood pressure. Yep. And this is where the point that you're probably going to make, but I'm going to undercut you here. Yes. Is that you say it. Well, this is where I'm going to go and say, if you had the tap going at five litres a minute, yeah. okay, then you whack on a one metre hose yeah. and then you measured what came out of the end of that hose. Let's just say it's fixed. Yeah. The hose doesn't do any more. It's just a normal rubber, rubber hose and measured how much came out of the hose at one metre. Let's just say 4.999999 litres come out of the, that end. Oh, yep. Okay. Now I whack on that one kilometre hose yeah. and I go to the end of that hose. Yeah. I bet five litres is not coming out. No, you're right, but blood flow and blood pressure are different things. Okay. And so if you were to measure the blood pressure yep. upstream mm-hmm. of the hose, yep. so at the tap, yeah. at the heart, yep. it's going to be high. Yep, agreed. Right? Yep. And so while the flow at the end of the tap is going to be low. And it's, di- and it's diminished. Because a, tap, because a tap isn't dynamic, because a tap doesn't – Alter yes, in response to yep, yep. resistance agreed, changes, agreed. but a heart does. Yep. So let's just say that the tap could dynamically change. So what you do is you turn on the tap faster. That's right. And, and then higher. and then you would get the five liters out. Exactly. But in doing so, um, you really need to bump up, bump up the pressure within yep. the hose to get that extra amount. I, I have had people say to me, oh, you can't say that a blood vessel constricts and the blood pressure increases because that's not true. The blood pressure actually decreases and that – you're right. It decreases. Who is that person? Uh, uh, some dingus at the at the uh, downstream from that vessel, right? But because the blood's backing up into the heart, yep. the heart doesn't just beat seventy times a minute and that's it. It gets more blood. It fills it more. That's the first thing. So more preload which means more ejection fraction or higher stroke volume, but also more afterload more resistance it needs to overcome. So heart rate and stroke volume goes up to overcome it and therefore the blood pressure downstream increases. And so this is what we're referring to. So let me just quickly summarise here what we've said thus. Oh no, actually with the length of the hose. Reason why this is super important is because the more body mass that you put on, the more blood vessels your body needs to make through a process called angiogenesis. Mm. But the more blood vessels that you have, i.e. the longer the blood vessels you have, the more resistance is present and the more the heart needs to work harder to overcome it. 
and the more likely you are to have hypertension. And so people who are overweight have far more blood vessels. And I tried to find an accurate number here as to for every kilogram of fat you put on, how many blood vessels, what length of blood vessels do you create? 20 kilometres. It changes from 20 kilometres to like 100,000 kilometres. It's some outrageous... Really, that much? It's ridiculous. So I don't know what the actual value is, but all you need to know is for every kilogram of fat that you put on, you increase the length of your blood vessels, which increases the resistance, which makes your heart have to work harder to overcome it. And that can lead to changes in the which heart is, which itself. Is a, which is part of the reason why um, obesity is a huge modifier risk factor for part of it, hypertension. Yes. Yeah. Okay, so let's just quickly summarise here what we've said so far. We said that blood pressure changes in accordance with two major factors, the cardiac output and the systemic vascular resistance, so the resistance in in a blood vessel. Cardiac output can change in accordance with the heart rate and the stroke volume. You can change heart rate through the nervous system and you can change the stroke volume through the contractility, how hard it contracts, by altering preload, so filling, and by altering afterload, the resistive forces it needs to overcome. You can change, so that's everything changing cardiac output. You can change systemic vascular resistance by changing the diameter. So if you constrict a blood vessel, you increase the resistance and you increase its blood pressure. If you dilate a blood vessel, you decrease the resistance, decrease blood pressure. But you can also change the resistance by changing the viscosity, the more viscous, the higher the blood pressure, vice versa, and by changing the length. The longer the vessel, the greater the resistance, the greater the blood pressure. So what all of that also means is if you want to alter blood pressure, change any one of those factors that we Mm. mentioned. Now, you can't change the length of a blood vessel overnight. You can't necessarily change the viscosity of a blood vessel overnight, but you can change the diameter of a blood vessel in an instant through a number of different mechanisms. And we call these, and these are the major mechanisms that alter blood pressure. So if you think, what are the major things that can change blood pressure? Well, obviously heart rate can change it and the filling and emptying of the heart, like we said, preload, afterload, and so forth. But one of the things, one of the major changes of blood pressure is honestly that diameter of the blood vessel because it's to the power of, the radius to the power of four. So the diameter of blood vessel is the most powerful way to alter blood pressure. And this is now where we need to talk about all the things that can change the diameter of a blood vessel or the substances that can change. What do you reckon? Should we move on to that? Yep. Okay, so how do you want to do this? I've got a couple of ways. I think that it's good to talk about the general factors that can change the diameter of a blood vessel. So regardless of which blood vessel feeding which tissue. I think we should, yeah, I think we should start systemically. Okay. So how do we maintain blood pressure? Whole system based. And then we could look at it, how it can be affected. In, okay. in local environments. All right, so let's look at systemically. So globally, what's the major things that can change the diameter of a blood vessel and why? Um, well, one of, the, one of the big ways of regulating blood pressure um, is neurologically and you... The brain. And you measured... You kind of spoke about that already, but let's just quickly go over it. So um, to, to maintain blood pressure, which is a ball... Can we give a ballpark figure just so people know what what this number is. That's a good point. We haven't spoken about blood pressure values. Should we talk about that quickly? I think very quickly. Okay, so when the heart contracts, 
Systole? Yes. It is going to eject the blood at its greatest force. And so left ventricle contracts, systole, the blood ejects from the left ventricle, goes into the aorta and all the aortic branches. And it- Which is a gazillion apparently. That's right. Good, good memory. To Darvich 2022. (laughs) And that pressure is going to stretch the aorta and the aortic vessels, right? So that's the maximum amount of pressure present in the blood vessels. like a big wave of pressure flying down- the, uh, the aorta down all the arterioles. That's Just the highest wave. amount of pressure that's present. And that's what you will feel when you take a pulse. That's the systolic value. Yep. And on average, that's 120 millimetres of mercury worth of pressure. Okay. Now, the diastolic value, because there's two readings of a blood pressure, 120 generally over something called 80, right? So there's two values, which is the systolic over the diastolic. And this is something that I always was confused with when I was first in undergraduate studying. I'm like, well, when the heart contracts and contracts hard, it, I get why it produces 120 millimetres mercury worth of pressure because it's pushing all this blood into the vessels and putting force on the walls. It's stretching those vessels. But I don't get why when the heart's relaxing, there's 80 millimetres mercury worth of pressure. Why isn't it zero, right? That okay. was always what I thought. And until I realised that, the... Larger arteries like the aorta and its major branches are very elastic, very stretching. Like your underpants. Like, well, like my newer underpants. Yeah, okay. Unlike your underpants. Do you wear underpants? Probably not, <laughs> to be honest. You're a weird dude. So under diastole, it stretches huge amounts. So stretches the elastic tissue in the, in the arteries. And then when the heart relaxes. Recoils back. It snaps back. And when it snaps back, it continues to push blood. So the snapping back or the recoil of the elastic arteries generates its own pressure, and that's the diastolic pressure, which is 80 millimetres mercury worth of pressure. So in actual fact, the systolic blood pressure is a reflection of how well the heart is working as a pump. And the diastolic pressure is a reflection of how elastic your arteries are. And what do you call that gap between the two? The pulse pressure. Okay. And, and, what, and why could that be important to know? Well, it's important because if your blood pressure is 120 over 80, you go, okay, both of those are relatively normal values. But if you find that your diastolic pressure is low, let's just say 50, you go, wow, okay. The heart's pumping. I know that the systolic is representative of how well the heart's pumping and it's pumping out blood well. That's good. But if the diastolic is really low, it means that there's hardly any or less elastic recoil of the arteries. So the arteries must be hardened a little bit. So not not like the floppy underpants that happens when they get older. No. They just become like Stenotic, rock hard. Hard, hard, right? And so it might be due to uh, less elastic tissue or more plaques. Or like so atherosclerosis. Or atherosclerosis, which is one of the other episodes that we've done. I recommend you listen to that. Uh, <clears throat> and so this what we call widened pulse pressure, so the difference between the systolic and diastolic, if that's widened or greater, that can be an indication of the arteries have hardened and usually something that you can see in older people because generally with age, arteries tend to harden a little bit. So that's its clinical relevance there. And the, uh, and the other thing I think which you just mentioned here mm-hmm. is, that, is the pressure that you could take on the average between the two. Well, basically if you, wanted, if you put like a, a pressure gauge into your artery mm. – and you wanted to see, well, what's the average pressure that's in that vessel all the time? 
that would be called the mean arterial pressure. Yes. And you could work that out. There's a bit of a, a challenge in formula. Yep. But that's the diastolic pressure. Yeah. So 80, let's say, for example. Plus yep. a third yep. of the pulse pressure. Okay. And the pulse pressure is the difference between the systolic and diastolic. So if it's 120 over 80, that's 80, 90, 100, 110, 102. That's 40. Yep. So you so can calculate your mean arterial pressure by taking the diastolic, which is 80, plus a third of 40, which is around about 12. 12. So that then gives you around about 92 to 95 millimetres of mercury. So the mean arterial pressure, which is in a way the average pressure you're going to find in your arterioles, yeah, arterial system. Yeah, particularly the bigger ones. It's yep. going to be around about 90 to 95 millimetres of mercury. In actual fact, this pressure is the required pressure yes, for, to, to feed the tissues of the – to perfuse, perfuse them. the tissues of the body. It's a bit like if you're still going to use your – Wonderful hose analogy. Thanks. Remember those hoses that you can buy that kind of leak? <laughs> like, you Oh, you mean a broken hose? No, no, no. <laughs> you buy them, there's a purpose for them. And they got little pricks yeah, all through them. That's yeah. right. That's an inappropriate term. But yes, <laughs> little holes in them. Okay. Um, you put them out in front of your garden yeah. and it just kind of um, bleeds out. Leak, leaks out, leaks yeah. out. Yeah. Now, you need to have a certain pressure for that to kind of right, happen, right? Right, right. Okay, so the same kind of thing has to happen. You need a pressure within your arterial system for your capillary bed to kind of leak out into your tissue. Can, can I also continue this analogy? Because I actually use this in, in my lectures. So let's just say we've got this dodgy hose that you've got that's got these holes all the way through. They're not dodgy. Actually, buy it for this right. purpose. You've got this really great hose that's got <laughs> these holes all the way through. So let's say it's a 10-meter hose attached to the tap you turn it on and the water's flowing out but coming out of these little holes. Now, if you were to have a look at the pressure of the water coming out at each of these hose, where do you think the, the water's going to be pushing out the furthest at the highest pressure? Closest to the tap or furthest away? I'd say closest. Closest because as it pushes out, you're losing volume, yeah. cardiac output, yeah. right? Yeah. Therefore, dropping blood pressure. Yep. And that's a nice indication of the reason why – the more downstream you go from the left-hand side of the heart, so from arteries to arterioles to capillaries to veins, why the pressure drops? Because fluid is leaking out. The pressure drops because we're losing that pressure as we feed the tissues of the body. All right. I like it. I like it. Now, with this mean arterial pressure, like you said, this is, the, this is basically the pressure we need to perfuse or feed the tissues, yeah. right? Yeah. And this is important because if your blood pressure goes up, your arterioles need to respond to try and drop it a little bit. And if your blood pressure goes down, your arterioles need to respond to increase it. The reason why I'm saying arterioles is because I just said to you before that arteries, the bigger vessels, have heaps of elastic tissue so they can recall and stretch. Arterioles, which are the smallest arteries, they don't have much elastic tissue, but they've got huge amounts of smooth muscle in them. And that's important. They're circular smooth muscles. So they go around the circumference of the vessel so that they can actually change the diameter of the vessel. So the arterioles are the major players in altering blood pressure and therefore altering how a tissue gets fed. It can increase the flow or decrease the flow, therefore increase the perfusion, which is the feeding rate, basically. Yep, I like it. You're, you like that? All right. All so all right, the systemic, so we, said, we said the autonomic nervous system. We'll, we'll get into there. But, oh, okay. we, but then we had to kind of go off and define what pulse pressure was. And oh, yeah, that's right. like blah, blah, blah. So the take-home point is here, we have to maintain that mean arterial blood pressure yep. to ensure that all our body's tissues are being 
perfused with blood, therefore oxygen and nutrients. Mm -hmm. Okay, so it's very important that we regulate this pressure system. Okay. So what we would do is we would look at the most strategic blood vessels or arteries in the body. You think, well, these blood vessels are carrying a lot of blood. Therefore, we need to put special receptors on these blood vessels so we can kind of have an indication of how much blood pressure is in this vessel all the time. And so these vessels, aorta, so the aortic arch, yep. will put some special receptors in there and will also put some special receptors in your carotid. Okay. Um, kind of where your, your internal and external carotid splits apart. The sinus? The sinus, yep. Okay, so the aortic arch, which is coming straight out of the left-hand side of the heart, yep. so it's a really good indicator of pressure, right? Yep, yep. Uh, and the carotids, because it's feeding, I assume, oh, because it's the feeding brain. the brain. That's right. It's, it's so, really important that it needs to know what the pressure is. That's right. So the body's designed this to go, this is an important region that we want to always measure blood pressure. So let's put some special receptors there. Now, these receptors are measuring pressure. Yep. And so what's the term? But not just pressure. Well, in this case, we'll just go with pressure. You don't want to talk about the other one? Because they measure both, they, they measure both pressure and chemicals. They have both... Baroreceptors that measure pressure. Yeah, but we'll just stick with and chemoreceptors that measure chemical changes. We'll just stick with b- blood pressure at the moment. Okay. Okay. So they've got these receptors that are just measuring pressure, and these are called baroreceptors. Mm-hmm. So they are just special endings that can just um, dictate the way that the the blood vessel wall is being stretched. That's right. Now they relay. This is sensory nerves. Afferents. Taken, yep. Going back to the brainstem, one is via the glossopharyngeal nerve, one is via the vagus nerve. So glossopharyngeal is carotids yep. and vagus is aortic. Yep. yep. Back to the brainstem where you have a region of your brainstem in the medulla, which is your cardiovascular centre. Right. And they pick up the signal. Now, let's just focus on low blood pressure. All right. Okay. Forget high blood pressure. So let's say your mean arterial blood pressure is dropping yep. or, or your systole is dropping and it's now instead of 120 – Let's say it's 80. All right. Okay. So, so this is now what? A threat to perfusion. Correct. Okay. Tissue's going, ooh, I'm getting hungry. We need to boost this pressure up because I'm not getting the food I need. Yeah. All right. For whatever reason it is, but let's just say it's, sure. it's low. So it shoots this signal or signals back to the medulla and says, hey. Because there's lack of stretch in that right. aortic yep. arch and carotids. We're getting, yep. That's right. We're getting a low stretch. Therefore, we've got low pressure. We're going to have problems in our body if we don't rectify this. Mm. The control center in the medulla says, all these alarms going off. Like, yep, and it goes, all right. Do we have an alarm? Um, <laughs> there's the well, alarm. Well, that's close so. enough. Um, <laughs> so that's, this is going red flashing lights are going off in the medulla. Yep. And it goes, we need to deal with this. What are we going to do? 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 Well, let's activate the sympathetic nervous system. Nice. Okay, so we're going to turn on the sympathetic nervous system. And particularly, we're going to send um, signals in the first instance to the heart, right, and then this goes to what we spoke about. So nerves, nerves go into the heart, um, so this would be probably between T, T2 and T4, mm. coming into the heart and they would kind of bind on to the SA node. So it's going to do, it's going to, because the aim is to increase blood pressure here because yeah, it yeah. was a drop, it's going to play around with as many of those factors yeah, that we right. said as possible. So yeah. it's going to play around with the factors of car, cardiac output, yep. which is stroke volume and heart rate and play around with the diameter of blood vessels yep. as well. So well, that'll, that'll, that'll do. So basically right? that's what it does. Yeah, right? that's right. Yeah. So basically it says to the heart, please increase your speed, yeah. heart, rate, heart rate and 
and make your beats a bit more powerful. Increase contractility. Okay. Perfect. So that's cardiac output goes yeah, up and we yeah. know that increases heart Oh, sorry, blood pressure, yep. but also goes to certain blood pressure. Uh, sorry, certain blood vessels, mm. which it goes. Mm, these are going to the most important parts of the body. Mm. We will um, keep these open, and we will constrict areas where maybe it's less important, like the skin and the gut. So uh, this is a great point because one of the major um, systemic regulators, not local regulators of blood pressure, is this sympathetic nervous system to increase blood pressure. Um, and like you said, not just going to the heart to do all those things that you just said, but going to the blood vessels. And so the sympathetic nervous system is the fight or flight response. We always think about the adrenaline response because the neurotransmitter it releases is noradrenaline. And so noradrenaline has very specific receptors called adrenergic receptors and many of the adrenergic receptors of the blood vessels are these alpha receptors okay so these alpha 1 receptors that are present the noradrenaline will bind to them stimulate a whole bunch of downstream things that result in i think a chemical called endothelin being released and that tells the blood vessel to constrict right and we said that increases resistance increasing blood pressure great this is what happens with most of the blood vessels in the body so i said remember i went through that list of carotids brain gut yeah, 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 yeah blah 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 okay it does that to pretty much all of them um unless you're exercising and then if you're exercising, you, you don't want to constrict at the muscle. You want to dilate, dilate. at the muscle. Yeah. And so paradoxically, the sympathetic nervous system can actually tell the uh, vasculature of the skeletal muscle to dilate and not constrict. And that's because there's another adrenergic receptor there. In addition, they do have alpha-1 receptors. So there is a constriction effect happening, but they've also got beta receptors that are present there, beta-2 receptors. And beta-2 receptors result in a relaxation, dilation. dilation. Um, and so it's competitive, but the beta-2 overcomes the alpha-1. Yeah, wow. So at the end of the day, you get this relaxation. And another thing that happens, and I know it's a bit of a digression, so I apologise, is that when you're exercising, because you've also got motor neurons coming down in addition to the sympathetic neurons, the motor neurons are innovating the skeletal muscle to tell them to contract. And to do that, they release ACH. acetylcholine, right? And acetylcholine can spill over and inhibit the alpha-1 receptors as well. Oh, okay. And can also result in nitric oxide release to dilate the blood vessel too. So there's this effect of acetylcholine inhibiting the sympathetic effect of alpha-1 receptors, but also the beta-2 receptors of the sympathetic nervous system being stimulated, both resulting in a dilation at the skeletal muscle vasculature. Yep. But anyway, so we're talking about, so we spoke about the sympathetic nervous system predominantly playing its role in vasoconstriction uh, to increase resistance, increase blood pressure, but also increase heart rate, increase contractility, yep. also increasing blood pressure. Yep. That's the, that, is that the major systemic well, that's way one, that's to... That's one big one. Okay. And that will probably be the, the, the most immediate one. Yep. So let's just say we, we said that our blood pressure dropped to 80, right? Yeah. Let's just say you did that by you've just been sleeping for eight hours. Wow. And then for whatever reason... That'll you, be nice. You just jumped out of bed yeah. and went... So you went Horizontal to vertical. That's me. In one second. Yeah, like right? burpees. A so, bad burpee. So by doing that, you've changed positions and you've changed pressure and there's a whole lot of things that just change dynamically in the body. Um, that could have been in those split couple of seconds. Yeah. You've done enough to change the blood pressure yeah. from 120 while you're lying in the bed horizontal to now 80. 
But the nervous system has done this really quick, rectified it, and your blood pressure is shot back up right. to keep you perfused and you don't pass out. Okay? Now, so this particular regulation step that we just spoke about would be very acute. But let's just say um, it wasn't necessarily rectified and your blood pressure remained low for minutes yeah. or even hours. Ooh. So you need another system to kind of kick in as well. Yep. Okay? Now this so is… saying the nervous system is fast-acting blood pressure control and now you're talking about a longer-acting blood pressure control. Yeah, this, is another, this is another one that can be used if it, it hasn't been rectified in a and very short term. We're all talking about term. boosting up blood pressure yeah, here, right? right? Yep. Okay. Because we're talking about having low blood pressure. All right. So there's another system which is more hormonal-based and this is, this is based on um, one of those organs that you spoke about that gets a lot of blood. Which one were they? Uh, kidneys. The kidneys. Yeah. yeah. So this is a renal system. Yep. And this, because it gets so much blood flow, a bit like the neurological one, it's a good place to, to um, measure and try to help regulate blood pressure. Yeah. I, this is one of my favourite systems to yeah, deliver. Yeah, you've done 15 videos on it. So to deliver a lecture on. And I also say to my students, you know, did you know that the kidneys are responsible predominantly for long-term blood pressure. Why? Why would it be the kidneys? It makes no sense, does it? And obviously the aim is to get them to say, well, they need to filter the products of the blood. So the kidneys need to constantly, they need to filter 120 mils of blood every minute, right? Which we call the glomerular filtration rate. And they must do that. Regardless of what's happening anywhere else in the body, they must do that because there's heaps of products in the blood that need to get out of there mm. or need to be put back into there in order for you to be happy, healthy and, and stay alive. And it's the kidney's primary role. So, And the kidneys actually need a higher pressure mm. in its capillary bed than the rest of the capillary beds in the body right. to, to do the filtering. So can I talk about this system? It's my favourite system to talk about. Go for it. Okay. This system is called the Renin-Angiotensin-Aldosterone system. We'll do a whole episode on it. I think we have. Um, have we? Are we going to update it? Yeah, maybe. But um, I'll have to check. We have definitely. Oh, okay. So this system is a super cool system. It's the way the kidneys increase blood pressure. So long story short, if your blood pressure goes too low, your kidneys can pick this up. A number of different ways. So first way is that you need to realize that the kidneys filter blood through something called a glomerulus and that glomerulus is attached to something called a nephron. And Glomerulus nef- means like a ball of wool. Yeah, ball of wool, ball of yarn. This is where the, this is basically the a capillary of bed of, yeah. the, um, of the, where the filtration occurs. It's the filtration site. And then the glomerulus, uh, sorry, then the nephron is just a series of long tubes where you can sort of fine tune what's going to be peed out or kept in the body. So you can reabsorb things or secrete things. Okay, so there's a blood vessel going into the glomerulus called the afferent arteriole toward the glomerulus to be filtered. Now, so this is basically going to be whatever's in the blood is going to be whatever's in this afferent arteriole. And also whatever pressure is in the blood or the arterial system is going to be in this afferent arteriole. So if your blood pressure is low, the pressure in this afferent arteriole is also going to be low. And there are cells that are present in this afferent arteriole called granular cells. And they have baroreceptors, like we spoke about earlier, that pick up the drop in pressure. And if it goes, oh, the pressure's low, granular cells pick it up, and they release a hormone from... Uh, a protein-based hormone from these granular cells called renin. So that's 
one way that renin can, can be, be released, released, the very first thing that we're going to Just purely from pressure? Just from pressure. Okay. But the other thing is this. If that pressure is low, think about the filtration. The filtration is going to be slower. So things get filtered into the nephron more slowly and the, the filtrate, so the filtered blood that's moving through the nephron is also going to be moving more slowly, which means there's a greater time for things to be reabsorbed, such as sodium. So if things are moving through the nephron slowly, more, there's more time to pull sodium back into the body and then by the time this sodium reaches the end of that nephron, called the distal convoluted tubule, the sodium concentration is low. And there are cells in that distal convoluted tubule called macula densa cells. Think of denser as measuring density, right? They measure the concentration of the sodium. They have little tongues. They do. They lick it. They lick the fluid and go, ooh, there's not much salt here. So the sodium's dropped. They, funnily enough, these distal convoluted tubules are in close proximity to the afferent arteriole. So these macula densa cells are actually right next door to the granular cells that release renin and tell them to release renin. So the, there's two ways we can release renin now. Low pressure in the afferent arteriole and low sodium concentration in the distal convoluted okay. tubule. Now the third way is the way that you alluded to earlier. Again, the sympathetic nervous system, so important for blood pressure. It can directly innovate the granular cells to release renin. So there's three ways. Okay. Now, what does renin do? Renin. So you throw all this renin into the blood. That's right. And the liver at the same time is producing, storing and producing this thing called angiotensinogen. But it does this all the time anyway, right? All the time anyway. Um, If there's no renin, doesn't matter, just circulates, gets recycled, right? But if it ends in O-G-E-N, usually it's a stored and an active molecule that needs to be activated. Generated. That's right. And renin is what activates angiotensinogen. So angiotensinogen is released from the liver. Yep. It's in the blood. It's floating around aimlessly, has no friends. It's really sad, upset and isolated. It's the Barton of the body. (laughs) All of a sudden, renin gets shot out of the kidney. That's right. And these two molecules come bump into each other. Yep. And they are like... It's like you and I, man. I'm Renan. Lost, lost, a I long st- lost friend. I was going to say, I stimulate you. I activate, I, <laughs> I activate you um, because Renan basically chops off that O-G-E-N and turns angiotensinogen into angiotensin. Okay. At least the f- angiotensin one. Now think about the, the name angiotensin. Angio means blood vessel. Tensin is referring to pressure. So I wonder what this molecule does. Anyway, so renin uh, turns angiotensinogen into angiotensin 1, which does pretty much not much. That's also like me. Yeah, so it's still you. You're still (laughs) floating through the system feeling sorry for yourself until you come across the lungs. Actually, a a multitude of tissues, but predominantly the lungs, have this enzyme called angiotensin converting enzyme. Ace, ace, baby. Right? And so... Unsurprisingly, angiotensin converting enzyme converts angiotensin so one. It's an acronym into angiotensin two. Okay, angiotensin two does all the important Everything. stuff. Yes. So number one that angiotensin two does now that it's floating through the bloodstream in the body, it is a generalized vasoconstrictor. So if it constricts blood vessels, it increases blood pressure because of the increase in resistance. We Good. spoke about that earlier. Another thing that angiotensin two does is it constricts the efferent arteriole. So. The afferent arteriole, I said, is the blood vessel going into the glomerulus for filtration. But on the other end of the glomerulus, there's another arteriole, unlike any other area in the body, which is like um, uh, if you were to constrict it, the blood pressure is going to back up into the glomerulus and increase the filtration pressure, which is the aim. We want to increase filtration here. Um, So there's that. Angiotensin II also goes to the adrenal gland 
to release the other A in Raz. Aldosterone. Mm. So, yeah, now we've got the renin, angiotensin, aldosterone system. And aldosterone travels to the nephron as well to increase sodium reabsorption back in the body because wherever sodium goes, water follows. And here's another important point. If you've got a lot of salt or sodium in your bloodstream, it's going to pull water towards it, increasing blood volume. If you increase blood volume, you increase cardiac output, therefore increasing blood pressure, Mm. right? And then the final thing that angiotensin II does is it travels to the pituitary gland, particularly the posterior pituitary, to release So technically the hypothalamus? Um. No, because the hypothalamus produces antidiuretic hormone and stores it in the posterior pituitary gland. So it's actually released at the posterior pituitary gland. So I don't think but it would, needs but, to but stimulate But wouldn't it be the, the hypothalamus, hypothalamus that actually tells it to re-release that? I don't think so because it, tra- it, it already has sent it down the neural innervation to the posterior. And I think it's stored at the distal end of the neuron. But... And so maybe you do need to stimulate the hypothalamus for it to be released or you could stimulate the posterior pituitary directly. Regardless, yeah, aldosterone yeah. stimulates ADH, antidiuretic hormone, also, I think also known as vasopressin in yeah, the vasopressin. US. Um, and that just does similar to aldosterone, but tell, instead of telling sodium to be reabsorbed, it just directly tells water to Anti-peeing. be reabsorbed. Yeah, stops peeing. So increases water volume in the blood, increasing blood volume, increasing... Stroke volume increasing, cardiac output increasing, yep. blood pressure. Yep. So you can see that the renin, so angiotensin, aldosterone system is important. Ultimately, hopefully rectifies that low blood pressure. That's right. And so those two systemic things, mm. neurally yep. and the RAS system, hopefully will rectify the blood pressure to bring if it back into normal range. Yeah. Now there is one that goes in the opposite direction, yep. ANP. Oh, yeah. What does that stand for? Uh, atrial natriuretic peptide. I think basically all you need to know there is if your blood pressure is too high. That's the opposite of aldosterone, right? Yeah. So basically it um, is released by stretch receptors in the atrium, which then drops this hormone ANP Mm. into the blood, which then goes to the kidney and kind of does the opposite. It helps you excrete more volume and therefore um, your blood pressure will drop. Yeah, excrete more sodium. Yeah. And then wherever again, wherever sodium goes, water follows. Remember that. You eat salt, you get thirsty. Wherever salt goes, water follows. If you've got a lot of salt in your blood, you've got a lot of water in your blood, your blood pressure goes up. If you excrete more salt, you excrete more water, your blood pressure goes down. So diuretics work, mm. right? Most People, of them, yeah, If you yeah. want to drop the blood volume or blood pressure of somebody using diuretics, you basically just take all the salts and tell your body to pee them out, and then the water follows. Yeah. That's a very simplified view of how diuretics work. Um, so that's the, that's the systemic regulation. Now you want to talk about some of the local, local yes. ways of how blood pressure can be regulated in different regions of the body. Yeah, I love this. I think it's so interesting. Um, so first thing that you need to understand is that um, tissues regulate their own blood pressure in response to their metabolic demands. So if tissues require more oxygen and more nutrients, they can increase their own blood pressure and vice versa or change the blood pressure and blood flow and vice versa. So first thing is you've got something called the myogenic response. This is basically the muscles in the arterioles going towards the tissues that need to be fed. And so um, if the perfusion rate goes up too high, Basically, you're overfeeding the tissue and it's like, slow down, I don't want this, and it causes vasoconstriction, 
Brilliant. Yeah. And the opposite, if the perfusion goes down so it's not getting enough nutrients, it can tell blood vessels to dilate and relax and bring more blood into that particular area. And it can do this through a whole number of substances. So, so the myogenic response can simply just be reflexive of the muscle itself or you can have the metabolic control of this, which is through certain metabolites. So if your tissues tend to um, accumulate too much adenosine, which is part of ATP, uh, nitric oxide, carbon dioxide, potassium ions, uh, hydrogen ions or lactate, um, all these things are telling you that the tissue's undergoing a whole bunch of metabolism. So highly metabolic. Highly metabolic. So high adenosine, it means you're using heaps of ATP. A lot of carbon dioxide, that's the byproduct of... uh, Respiration. uh, Respiration. A whole bunch of potassium and a whole bunch of hydrogen ions, again, same thing. Lactate, increase anaerobic metabolism, so forth. I wonder if also this stuff would be released in cell injury as well. Yes. Because some of these things, you know, potassium... You know, cells are essentially potassium bags, right? And yeah. so if potassium, yourself, <laughs> potassium all of a sudden gets released into tissue, mm-hmm. it could be an indication that we've got some cellular damage here. So uh, this is basically the, the metabolic control of blood vessel diameter, which we know changes blood pressure, uh, is also part of inflammation. Mm. right? So any damage to vascularized tissue, like you said, injury, will result in the release of these things, plus yeah. some other chemicals like bradykinins and histamines and prostaglandins. And anyway, all of these. So again, increases in adenosine, nitric oxide, carbon dioxide, potassium ions, hydrogen ions, lactate, bradykinin, histamine, prostaglandins. Any of these accumulate near the blood vessel or around the blood vessel. It results in dilation, more blood flow to the area and reduced blood pressure. Right? Um, and then the opposite can happen if any of these decrease. So if you've got decreased oxygen in that area, it can obviously lead to dilation, Yeah, right? We want more oxygen, so we dilate the blood vessel, get more in. Yeah. And obviously, if you flip any of these and make it the opposite, the opposite can occur. So that's the metabolic control. Now, this can happen to all the vascularized tissue of the body, but there are certain things that can affect certain tissues. So for example, if we take a look at the heart, yep. adenosine, High adenosine, high carbon dioxide, high nitric oxide, low oxygen, just like we stated, is a strong regulator of vasodilation. Right? For the coronaries. For the coronary arteries. And again, the opposite for vasoconstriction. When we look at the brain, carbon dioxide is basically the strongest one here. So if you've got high carbon dioxide, it goes, oh, we need to get rid of this carbon dioxide. It, we think that there's not enough oxygen. Let's vasodilate. Okay. Let's bring more blood in. Yep. Right? And then the opposite. So if you've got low carbon dioxide, your blood vessels to your brain actually constrict. Now think about this. So that can be important for like increased intracranial pressure, right? Increased intracranial pressure. And if you want to look at it, uh, remember when you were a kid and used to hyperventilate? (laughs) No, I don't recall that. Okay, okay. You never- You You were a bored kid. Okay, so the, I, I actually never did this because I always knew it was stupid. <laughs> the right? only time I ever did that was when I was trying to um, do win swimming races yeah. under, oh, first, under the water. do not ever hyperventilate before you put your head underwater. And I'll tell you why in a sec. So think about Is this. Is that what all the deep, deep divers do? Yeah, they do, but they're professionals okay. and not you. You're an idiot. So <laughs> if you hyperventilate, it means you're... <laughs> you're basically blowing out all of the carbon dioxide in your system. 
which means the carbon dioxide levels in your blood goes down. Yep. Which means your Hypo- hypocapnic. Yes, and the blood vessels to your brain constrict. If you do that too much, the blood vessels to your brain constrict so much that perfusion to your brain drops too much and you pass out. It just starts to shut areas off and it goes, you know what we don't need? We don't need consciousness. I'm going to shut that off so the rest can maintain. And so you pass out. When you pass out, you stop hyperventilating and the carbon dioxide levels go back to normal and your blood vessels dilate again. The reason why you shouldn't hyperventilate before you go underwater is because when you hyperventilate and you blow off all that carbon dioxide, you don't know when it's time to breathe. So your oxygen levels may be fine, but your major stimulus to take the next breath is actually high carbon dioxide levels. So you may hyperventilate, (laughs) blow off all the carbon dioxide, go under the water, go, I can hold my breath for way longer now because I don't have the high carbon dioxide levels to tell me to breathe. Mm. But you'll hit this point where your oxygen levels drop so low that you become so hypoxic that you pass out and drown. So there's that. Especially if you're way underwater. Exactly. All right, so that's the brain, right? The brain, mainly carbon dioxide. The kidneys, we spoke about it before. They're mainly controlled by that renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system, but also locally by prostaglandins. And myogenic. And the myogenic response because of the afferent and nephrin arterial. Now, prostaglandins are really important for vasodilation. So they can increase the blood flow to the kidneys. That's important. An important clinical point here. That's how they do it um, intrinsically. Exactly. So they're not so much concerned about regulating the blood pressure to the whole body here, just their blood flow to their own self. Yes, yes, exactly. And prostaglandins are important in that control mechanism to increase the flow, Uh, so vasodilation of the afferent arterial, the vessel coming into the glomerulus for filtration. I mean, it's mesangial cells, right? Yes. Okay. Now, because we need these prostaglandins to maintain perfusion at the kidneys, there's actually a certain set of drugs that we can take that block prostaglandins. Do you know what these drugs are? NSAIDs. They are NSAIDs. That's right. Uh, non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs like aspirin, salicoxib, um, diclofenac. Ibuprofen. And ibuprofen, they're the main ones, right? So they can actually inhibit ibuprofen. Uh, they can actually <laughs> inhibit prostaglandins if taken in excess, which means you don't get the vasodilation. You get the opposite, the vasoconstriction, yeah. and you can actually injure your kidneys through lack of perfusion. So this is why abuse of NSAIDs or taking them uh, inappropriately Spe- can damage your kidneys. Specifically the non-selective ones. Yes. And this is part of the reason why the selective twos have been work partly invented mm. to overcome this issue. That's right. That's right. All right. Um, so that's the kidneys. Now the lungs are really interesting because the lungs work opposite. Opposite. So we said when carbon dioxide levels are high, you get vasodilation. And when oxygen levels are low, you get vasodilation. And the opposite, if CO2 levels are low and oxygen is high, you usually get vasoconstriction at blood vessels. Mm. Not at the lungs. It's the opposite at the lungs. And that's mainly because the lungs are there to help feed the blood as opposed to the blood to feed the lungs in this case, yeah. right? So if the, if the oxygen levels are low at the lung tissue, it doesn't result in a vasodilation like it would at other tissues, because other tissues are going, well, oxygen levels are low, I need more oxygen, let's dilate to get more oxygen to the tissues. But if the oxygen levels are low at the lungs, it means the lungs don't have enough oxygen to give the blood. 
Which so suggest- why would you yeah. dilate the blood vessel there? You're wasting blood going to that area. It's not getting any oxygen. So a region of the lung that had low oxygen and conversely high CO2 mm. would be suggestive that that part of the lung is poorly uh, ventilated. That's right. So there's something going wrong with bringing enough Might go- be blocked. Good, good air in and out of that part of the lung. Yep. So what the blood vessels are saying is there's no point to bring good blood to this region yeah. to pick up oxygen and drop off CO2 exactly. because this part of the lung is rubbish. Yeah. So You're wasting I'll, the blood going I'll to I'll vasoconstrict area. and go to another part of the lung that's better. Exactly. Um, And then finally, the skeletal muscle, which we alluded to earlier. Sympathetic nervous system can dilate here, unlike most other areas of the vasculature of the tissues, Um, but also those other things. So the metabolites are really big control mechanisms for blood flow as well and blood pressure, such as increased adenosine, potassium, hydrogen ions. uh, But you also said acetylcholine. And acetylcholine, yes, that's right. And that's basically it, man. That's We covered a lot. We covered a lot. We covered, I don't even want to do a recap because it's so much, but that is blood pressure. <laughs> and hopefully uh, this is everything you need to know about it. What do you reckon? Yeah, like you said, we, I think we were pretty extensive. Um, we'll do some follow-ups with um, blood pressure medications. Yep. So and we'll talk, hypertension. And hypertension. So we'll talk about what leads to cases of hypertension and what medications we could use to maybe counter that. But, but you know, luckily, because we've set you up here with all the determinants of blood pressure, you can just work backwards with knowing how the, the medications will work because exactly. basically they do all these variables in, re- in reverse. Exactly right. All right. Look, thank you, everybody. This episode is sponsored by no one. <laughs> See ya. <laughs> up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 